Soul, spirit, body of man. The definition of soul, given through Joseph Smith years prior to his translation of the Book of Abraham, was the spirit and the body together. And the spirit and the body is the soul of man. TNC 86, paragraph 2. Christ, as well as the noble and great, were all embodied and therefore resurrected beings before this world. They were souls. Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was, and among all these there were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls, that they were good, and he stood in the midst of them, Abraham 6, paragraph 1. Joseph Smith said, God made a tabernacle and put a spirit into it, and it became a living soul. How does it read in the Hebrew? It does not say in the Hebrew that God created the spirit of man. It says, God made man out of the earth and put into him Adam's spirit, and so became a living body. Compare with Genesis 2, paragraph 11. And I, the Lord God, formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into Adam his spirit or the breath of life, and man became a living soul, the first flesh upon the earth, the first man also. In tracing the thing to the foundation and looking at it philosophically, we shall find a very material difference between the body and the spirit. The body is supposed to be organized matter, and the spirit by many is thought to be immaterial, without substance. With this latter statement we should beg leave to differ and state that spirit is a substance, that it is material, but that it is more pure, elastic, and refined matter than the body. That it existed before the body, can exist in the body, and will exist separate from the body, when the body will be moldering in the dust, and will in the resurrection be again united with it. Without attempting to describe this mysterious connection and the laws that govern the body and spirit of man, their relationship to each other, and the design of God in relation to the human body and spirit, I would just remark that the spirits of men are eternal, that they are governed by the same priesthood that Abraham, Melchizedek, and the apostles were, that they are organized according to that priesthood which is everlasting, without beginning of days or end of years. Hebrews 1, paragraph 17 that they all move in their respective spheres and are governed by the law of God, that when they appear upon the earth they are in a probationary state and are preparing, if righteous, for a future and a greater glory. Speak with the tongue of angels. To have knowledge and inspiration that reckons from heaven itself. To be elevated by fire which purges sins and purifies, in effect, to receive holiness through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. This, in turn, makes one's own spirit holy. Your spirit or your ghost is within you, connected to heaven to such a degree through this process that you are in possession of a holy spirit or a holy ghost within you. To speak with a new tongue is to speak worthily of sacred things. It is to correctly weigh the truth of a matter, to know by the power of the spirit that what is said is true and in conformity with God's will, and then to speak it. It is to render sacred the vessel by the things it holds. To speak with a new tongue is to be able to speak with the tongue of an angel because one has become an angel, or a companion of angels, anyway. It is to elevate one's thoughts so that what then proceeds forth from the mouth is because of what is in one's thoughts. It is to reveal truth by the things one is authorized or commissioned to speak. It is to have a right to speak in the name of the Lord by His consent, His authority, and His will. It is to know, nothing doubting that He is one's Lord. Ether 1 Paragraph 14. It is to say, 
without hypocrisy, without guile, without hesitation, and in truth that the power of salvation is found in Christ and is made one his, that he has entrusted one with words of life, and that salvation can be found only in him and his words. It is to have the word of God within one. You cannot speak with the tongue of angels without having knowledge of certain things given you. The clarity with which you can declare truth is distinct from what others say or claim to know. Light and truth, which is intelligence or the glory of God, is not a mystery, but an understood and appreciated experience where darkness has fled and God's own glory has been upon you. See TNC 93, paragraph 11 and Genesis 2, paragraph 2. See also the glossary entry, Gift of Tongues. Spirit Matter At one time, Joseph said the Father was a spirit, and at another time, he was said to have a body as tangible as man's. Similarly, Jesus Christ was resurrected and unquestionably had a tabernacle consisting of flesh and bone that could be handled, see Luke 14, paragraph 6. He ate fish and broke bread with his disciples. See Luke 14, paragraph 7 and John 11, paragraphs 7 to 8. These were physical acts. Yet he also appeared in the upper room on the day of his resurrection without entering through the shut door, see John 11, paragraph 4. He ascended into heaven, see Acts 1, paragraph 3, and then descended from heaven in the sight of a multitude, see 3 Nephi 5, paragraph 3. These are not typical of physical bodies, as mankind knows them. When it comes to resurrected and glorified beings, the bodies are not the same as man's own physical, coarse constitutions. Nevertheless, God is composed of matter, there is no such thing as immaterial matter. All spirit is matter, but it is more fine or pure, and can only be discerned by pure eyes. We cannot see it, but when our bodies are purified, we shall see it as all matter. Therefore, it is equally true that God is a spirit, and that He also possesses a body as tangible as man's. How quickened is the body when He shows Himself? Or, in this coarse environment, how great a glory has he set aside to show himself here? Spirit of Christ You pray each time you partake of the sacrament to always have my spirit to be with you. And what is my spirit? It is to love one another as I have loved you, TNC 157, paragraph 51. Spirit of Truth Capitalization and context of how this term is used result in three different meanings. Spirit of truth, all in lower case. The light given to everyone. A description of something sought after to help guide or answer. Spirit of truth, where only spirit is capitalized. An event in which the Holy Ghost ministers, as in an ordinance, or when Christ takes ownership over something as is. And Spirit of truth, with both spirit and truth capitalized. A proper noun. A formal name for Christ, in the context of Scripture. Stiff-neckedness When a person is one, in error and two, decidedly committed to remaining so. He won't budge, won't humble himself, and won't ask the Lord to remove his scales of darkness. He remains a devoted disciple of unbelief leading to wickedness that is borne upon the shoulders of his ignorance. See also the glossary entry, Ignorance. Still, small voice. 
the gift of the Holy Ghost is conferred after baptism. It is intended to be a guide and to lead one into greater light and truth. It is the still, small voice which helps by whispering or giving impressions. It is a subtle and quiet tool, intended to help one develop sensitivity and reverence. It is the first comforter that is promised to the faithful. Strange Act Mankind is working their way back in a great chiasm of history as the Lord counts things back to the beginning, and it all draws to the end. He calls it a strange act. CTNC 101, paragraph 20, and Isaiah 8, paragraph 4. Everything will happen as foretold. Man cannot and is not supposed to be able to see it beforehand. They are only supposed to witness it unfold before them. They cannot comprehend God's strange act. Those who take the Spirit for their guide will not be deceived or hewn down. We are nowhere near Zion, and only a small fraction of what needs to be recovered has been given. Unless this generation is patient enough to allow God to do His strange act, and humble enough to support what He provides as He provides it, another future generation will need to accomplish Zion. If the wise men knew He had been born but could not identify where Christ's birth happened, despite all else they were able to do, then how can anyone know how God will accomplish His strange act in the last days? Remember the modern caution in TNC 101, paragraph 20, What I have said unto you must needs be, that all men may be left without excuse, that wise men and rulers may hear and know that which they have never considered, that I may proceed to bring to pass my act, my strange act, and perform my work, my strange work, that men may discern between the righteous and the wicked, says your God. Prophecies are not given so one will know details beforehand. They are given so that when they are fulfilled, one may understand that God knows the end from the beginning, see Isaiah 17, paragraph 1. As a gospel dispensation is unfolded, the Lord will always violate rules that man thinks exist involving timing and sequence. He will confer things which apparently belong long into the process and will do it, apparently, independent of the established requirements. But his strange act is not man's. He will do as he wills. Stretched forth his hand. And now it came to pass that after Abinadi had spoken these words, he stretched forth his hands and said, The time shall come when all shall see the salvation of the Lord, when every nation, kindred, tongue, and people shall see eye to eye and shall confess before God that his judgments are just. Mosiah 8, paragraph 13. Mosiah 7, paragraph 17 helps one to understand what he stretched forth his hands means, the Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. Abinadi is demonstrating the Lord's action, thereby affirming he is his messenger. He had been given the sign to testify and used it to declare he was a true messenger. Later in the Nephite history, the prophet Alma concluded his testimony of Melchizedek by using the same sign to evidence his authority. And now it came to pass that when Alma had said these words unto them, he stretched forth his hand unto them and cried with a mighty voice, saying, Now is the time to repent, for the day of salvation draweth nigh. Alma 10, paragraph 3. He used this sign because he was authorized to do so, and he understood what the declaration meant. Although those who were there may not have understood, it was a sign that he was a true messenger. Man cannot be saved in ignorance. Once the key of knowledge is lost, mankind is lost and cannot be saved until that key is returned. 
prophets sent with messages who testify to an ignorant people use signs that the Lord recognizes and authorizes, but they may not be noticed or understood by those who hear the message. Nevertheless, the testimony becomes binding when the Lord's seal is put upon it. This often involves a required sign to be given, or in other words, for hands to be stretched forth. Studying the Scriptures The Scriptures are a great source of inspiration and revelation. Through them one can gain experience in listening to the Spirit. They tutor the seeker, not just in doctrine, but in hearing the voice of inspiration, as well. Through Scripture study you can develop a greater spiritual sensitivity. If you have not begun to do that, you will need to start. Find time to be alone. Take the time to study, not just read, the scriptures. Pray before you begin. Think about the phrases used, and don't try to digest whole chapters at once. Be silent, so that you can hear the still, small voice. If there is some serious sin in your life, repent of it. Let the Lord know you are doing so because you want the Spirit as a guide in your life. He will respond. You will find He is no respecter of persons. He will send His Spirit to any sincere seeker for truth. And when He does, it will be as a result of you seeking the light and obeying the commandments. The Comforter's purpose is to guide you into greater truths. There is a library of truth waiting to be discovered inside the Scriptures. Use this library and experience the inspiration it offers. If someone is not willing to receive the contents of the revelations already recorded in the Scriptures, by studying them and learning such mysteries as they contain, then what makes that person think he can qualify to receive revelation of yet greater things? Why would heaven violate the rules of its own economy and do for that person what he can do for himself? No miracle is required to teach many of the mysteries of heaven. They are already in the Scriptures and in the ordinances. But if they are ignored with a refusal to receive what is in them, there is little reason to part the veil and teach more. We prove our need to be taught by heaven when we have done our part to study what heaven has already revealed. When we have exhausted the available information here, we are permitted to receive more because we ask and we are ready to receive. You can know a person is ready to receive because they have paid heed to what has been delivered to mankind already. Nephi has done this. This is why we find ourselves gaining a new flood of light from him. As we will see however, not all scripture is of equal value. When it comes to the scriptures, the Book of Mormon is plainly the best source for learning the mysteries of God. Within its pages is the fullness of the gospel, set out in plainness like no other volume. Joseph Smith was perhaps understating the matter when he proclaimed the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth, and the keystone to our religion, and a man could get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 194. In addition to other important matters, as Nephi's visionary encounter with the Second Comforter will teach us, the scriptures from all other sources have been corrupted. There are two things that will bring you closer to God than anything else. First, personal scripture study. Learn from them when you have time. Your private study will be more important than what others tell you about the scriptures. Second, personal prayer. Your private time spent in prayer will have the power to shape your life. If you study the scriptures when you are alone, and you pray in private, these two things, more than anything else, will draw you to God. See also the glossary entry, Pattern for Understanding Truth.
Submissive, submission. Acceptance of the Father's will in preference to your own. This does not say one should submit to men. There is nothing about following a man in the concept of submission. For the natural man is an enemy to God, and has been from the fall of Adam, and will be forever and ever, but if he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, and putteth off the natural man, and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord, and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father, Mosiah 1, paragraph 16. As used here, submission is not just an unanchored term, abstractly applied to anyone or anything. It is submission to God. Suddenly. Surprisingly. In an unexpected way. Being caught off guard. I declared what I was going to do, I did it, and you got caught off guard. See for example, Isaiah 17, paragraph 1. Suffer for their own sins. As to who will suffer for their own sins and yet enter into the celestial kingdom, there are at least two categories. The first is those who have received their calling and election but who return to sin, but not an unpardonable sin. These are required to pay the price for this misconduct. The second is those who are sealed up through the faithfulness of their parents and claimed as children of promise as a matter of right, because of the sealing upon the parents. Such children will need to either qualify in their own right, or if inheritors of the promise through the merit of their parents' sealing, they will have to suffer to become clean in order to inherit what is sealed upon them by this right. It is a mistaken idea that once someone's calling and election has been made sure they are required to suffer for their own sins, because they have knowledge they are redeemed. This is a twisted view, designed by the adversary to discourage those who might otherwise seek and find. It is not that the atonement ceases to operate for the redeemed. The atonement continues to cover the ongoing sins of these redeemed souls which arise from their foolishness, mistakes, errors of comprehension, and the things they don't understand yet. Christ does not require them to do what they don't know is a requirement yet. As the gentle and kind Lord, He will forgive all they do that is wrong, while He reveals through greater light and knowledge a higher path. Surety, Christ as. Surety is a word dating back to about 1300 AD, a guarantee, promise, pledge, assurance, from Old French cert, from Modern French charite, from Latin securitatum, freedom from care or danger, safety, security, meaning one who makes himself responsible for another. It was the power of the sun that was responsible for all creation. There is a dichotomy when the Son is saying He has to rely on the Father for all that He does and is, and yet He's very clearly the one that is responsible for this creation and is the life and the light of this creation, and it is through His sustaining power that all exist. The Father empowered the Son to use the Father's power to accomplish this. All had to be done through the Son because the Son was going to come down into the creation, reverse the process, and atone. The creation had to be made with the power of Christ in order for Christ to be able to redeem the entirety of the creation. Christ acts as the surety to guarantee that if this creation goes amok, He will sacrifice Himself in order for that to be reversed and restored again. Christ operates by the power of the Father to accomplish the creation and the redemption, and by accomplishing the redemption, He's able to reverse the process and restore it again. Once He had finished the process of the atonement, He had finished the course 
he had lived a life that allowed him to lay claim upon the resurrection, he had the right to eternal life. Because the wages of sin is death, but he did not earn those wages. In fact, it's because he had the right to eternal life that the atonement itself was infinite. What he gave up was infinite life by taking upon himself death. Christ guaranteed, as a surety, that this whole mess would be fixed by his willingness to attain to the resurrection and put himself in this position. Because the Father's power was what came through and because the Father had attained to the resurrection, it was impossible for the Father's plan to fail. The Father has already taken care of redeeming all the creations under his hand.